Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is available for free in iTunes. Please take a minute and subscribe. Once again, it's free. And when you subscribe, you know you'll always be up to date with the latest episode. You can also listen, again for free, at thejazzsession.com. In addition to episodes of the show, thejazzsession.com features written interviews, live jazz news, and lots of cool jazz links. This week's guest is pianist, accordionist, multi-instrumentalist composer David Witham. His new album is Spinning the Circle. From it, here's the opening track, The Neon. My guest is David Witham. He plays just about everything to great effect on his new album, Spinning the Circle, which is on Cryptogramophone Records. And if you know anything about Cryptogramophone, you won't be surprised by the uh, adventurous but also very listenable music that you'll find on Spinning the Circle. David joined by a really interesting and eclectic collection of musicians who come from across the spectrum, but themselves are no strangers to uh, checking out different genres. And it's my real pleasure to welcome David to the show. Thanks for being here, David. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jason. What a treat. Now, let's uh, start off talking about this band, which is, uh, it's really an all-star band, but it's all-stars from all across the the musical spectrum. People who, like yourself, have played everything from from pop to, uh, you know, the kind of pop jazz, to straight-ahead jazz, to more experimental music. How did you uh, come to meet some of the folks who are on this recording? Well, just, geez, along the course of the journey, you know. I mean, Jay Anderson I've known since I was a kid, since I was, geez, 16 or 17 years old. We played a lot of music together. We're great friends. Greg Lees, another guy who I played with, you know, started playing with 20 years ago. Various bands down here in the Southern California area, and then he got real famous and started working with Katie Lang and all these people. And John Cross and Luis Conte, I met when we were all working with Paul Anka, if you can believe that, <laughs> with Michelle Columbier as the musical director, which was really a treat. Wow. Um, so, those guys, we have a long, long standing relationship. Um, uh, let's see, Nels, I've known for going on, I think, 15 or so years now. It's hard to believe. And Scott's kind of the newcomer to the to the fold, and I got familiar with him through his work with Nels and singers. And uh, we played a, a tribute concert to the music of the Mwandishi Records for Jeff Gautier's 50th birthday a couple of years ago, so I actually got to play with him then and knew that he was somebody I wanted to do something with at some point. 
So it sounds like you crafted this band out of people with whom you had not only a musical but a real personal affinity. They're all great friends, and I think I said something to that effect in the liner notes. Just I feel lucky to have good friends that are such great musicians, you know, and then deciding to pick these particular guys and get them in a room that was a, that was a challenge that took almost a year you know because everybody's so busy doing different stuff you know but yeah that that friendship counted a lot you know toward the project for sure this is actually uh as at least as far as i've been able to figure out your debut recording as a leader so. well i guess in a commercial sense i i self-produced something about 20 years ago um, I recorded at Mad Hatter Studios. Uh, Jay Anderson and John Cross are both on that one, and it's called Online. It was kind of just as the Internet was starting to hit. But you could also take that to mean standing online somewhere waiting to get in, <laughs> in a building or whatever. You know, It was one of those kind of titles. So I guess it's the second record, but not too many people know about that first one. You know. So for a guy who's been, maybe this is the answer, as busy musically as you have, why have you waited kind of till now, after the 20 years ago, to... Uh, to <laughs> no, I make a record. record every 20 years, whether I need to or <laughs> <That's> not. <right. laughs> we'll do this again in 2027. Oh, my God. Well, I hope it's sooner than that. But, well, this one was... There was some procrastination in there, because Jeff offered this record to me in, I think, 2001 or so. And I was busy doing a, a theater gig in L.A. here, playing The Lion King. Um, doing that every day, and crypto was just starting to take off and I was trying to figure out how I would fit in with their kind of ethos and sound and then all of a sudden it was 2006 <laughs> and I had to I had to you know put the feet to the fire so to speak and from that point it it, it took another year just to corral these guys into one place at the same time you know you know it was the kind of thing it was like it was kind of a trying to define myself before I made the record too artistically you know it's when you play with a lot of different kind of people, uh, musically speaking, sometimes it's hard to know who you are in the pack of all that, you know, and that I kind of struggled with that for a while and then just decided to kind of get over myself and <laughs> do some music. So was it the writing that helped you figure out who you were? Um, you know, it was writing and it was also observing other creative people. And in this kind of this period leading up to this record, I was really involved with producing a, a community television show called Portable Universe. And the original intent for that was just to kind of showcase groups, you know, and, and learn a bit about producing television shows and, you know, I to showcase groups that I was involved with that weren't getting any, you know, coverage. And, you know, I ran out of bands after a while, and I knew a lot of creative people and, and just started inviting them in, and one thing would lead to another, and I just met all these wonderful people and got to watch, uh, you know, visual artists, musical artists of all kinds, and how they did it, you know, and what kind of what their creative process was. And there was something about that that was really great to observe. And I think part that that process had something to do with this finally breaking loose and we're and getting some music on on a disc. So a lot of these songs were kind of floating around for a while in search of a home, so to speak. And then I wrote some other stuff for just for the record in the last, you know, probably the last three or four years. You know, does that mean writing with these specific players in mind, or just writing with the concept of a record in mind? Um, just writing to write, just write, you know, just to do it. My craft of writing isn't as developed as my musical instrument playing craft is. 
so the songs kind of are a little more ephemeral and hard to chase down sometimes for me. I just, I don't get up and write every day like some people do, you know. I just tend to do them when they're happening and, and put them in a corner and, and then try to contextualize them later, you know. So in some cases I had those guys in mind, and in some cases I didn't. I knew I wanted to use Greg Lease. I knew I wanted to use Nels Klein. Uh, I knew I wanted to use Jay and Cross and, and Louis somehow. You know, I didn't didn't really know how it was all going to come together, you know. And finally we found those two days, and, you know, these guys were all great friends, but they've not played music together. <laughs> so I had no idea whether it was going to was gonna fly or not, you know. I'm, I'm, I had a pretty good instinct that it would, and it certainly did. So I got I got lucky that way, that's for sure. But, I, you know, you put a bunch of good guys in the room, you're going to come up with something, you know. talk a little bit about how you got to this place you were born in indiana right yeah and did you grow up in indiana or no no we, we moved out to california here in long beach when i was three so i'm about as close to a native californian as you, as you get out here <laughs> and why did you guys move out to california well i think i think my dad's basement flooded for the last time he had it you know so you know some winter rainstorm and they just said, forget it. And he'd been out here in Ventura, I think, shipping out during World War II. And my mom came out to see him off. And I think they really liked Southern California. You know, that I think the seed was planted then. So they moved out. God, 1960. <laughs> Were your folks musicians or musical people? Not really at all. My dad was pretty tone deaf. <laughs> he grew to appreciate the musical things that I was doing over time. He was always kind of, you know, urging me to get a, a real job until he came to my, um, I think it was my junior recital in college and realized I was, you know, I was intent on doing this. And my mom, um, she passed away when I was 12, but she took up the organ, like the, I, what was it? It was a Lowry home organ, you know, with the two manuals and the pedals and a little rhythm box and all that stuff. And I think she had an interest in music, but I think primarily it was to kind of maybe draw me into to something like that. So I took to it a little bit, and they just they totally encouraged it. And I was off and running from about seven years old. And so, what did off and running mean? Were you playing piano at that time, or organ? Well, just or? playing the, just playing the organ, you know, playing this little cheesy home organ kind of vibe, you know, and playing tunes. And I got really super lucky. I, I the place that I took lessons from the teacher there was somebody who. It was probably still doing gigs in bars. She had a B3, you know, and then the whole thing. And she taught me harmony, you know, when I was seven years old. You know, just 
taught me all the chords and you know every permutation of that and taught me how to read out of fake books way back then so that stuff was you know that was a huge head start is that Louise Knudsen you're talking about? Louise Knudsen. Oh, yeah. Knudsen. Okay, well, yeah. I took a shot at it. Or so. Knudsen. That's what, it was Knudsen. Knudsen, was, okay. Yeah. Looks like Knudsen. That's right. <laughs> yeah, Louise, she was a trip. She was great. Um, I studied at this crazy place. It was this guy that owned it. His name was Bob Pierce, and he had a Cadillac dealership later here in Southern California. But he was like the king of the organs around here. He may have sold the first B3. You know, that's how that's how far he goes back. And he had the largest collection of miniature pianos, and they were housed in this building. It was, I mean, thinking back on it, it was probably horribly tacky, but it was fascinating when you're a kid, you know. It's kind of big warehousey kind of building, and there's organs and pianos everywhere, and you go upstairs, and you get to take your lesson. And I remember the first lesson, I came, came out crying, because I had to do, you know, I had to play the chords in one hand and the melody in the other, and, and play with play the bass pedals too I just <laughs> I didn't have that down <laughs> And then what were you doing when you were in school? Usually there's not too much room for a piano in most school band programs. Were you Well, God, anything. You know, we just, because we like music, we'd, we'd bring our instruments home to practice in grade school, and we'd trade them around. You know, I'd play a little trumpet. And, you know, you just, you just mess around with them because it's something to mess around with, you know. And so we'd, we'd, we'd trade off and stuff like that. And I've, I think before I took a, the organ, I was playing the bass drum in the orchestra or something in fourth grade. That's kind of where they put you when you can't do anything else. <laughs> I wanted to play snare drum, but <laughs> they had somebody who could really play. <laughs> but I got—I remember I got a kit back then, but I was left-handed, so it was kind of weird that way. Um, I play conventionally now when I do sit behind a drum set, which is very rarely. <laughs> Thank God for everybody else. <laughs> And when did it occur to you that, oh, not only can I do this, but maybe I should do it? Maybe I should keep trying this? I think I, think I had it in mind by the time I was 12. I mean, and that was around the time that my mom passed away. And I actually put music to the side for a few years after that. But somehow in the back of my mind, I knew this, I had this thing, you know, that I really liked. And somehow it would, you know, that was my path. You know, you mess around with it in junior high. You're just kind of trying to become a person in junior high school. So you're playing in the band. I mean, I would play Call to the Colors sometimes in the morning on the tuba with the trumpet guys, you know, just for laughs. And, you know, we were just doing any and all kind of manner of stuff. And then they had a little jazz band. And, they, you know, there was room for a piano player. So I asked if I could do that. They had me, they had me playing tuba at that point. 
again, but he offered me the sousaphone or the string bass. <laughs> I made the wrong call. <laughs> could have been a, could have been a bass player, but again, being left-handed, it was weird. You know, it just didn't feel right to play it right-handed, and they didn't really want to teach you if you were playing the thing left-handed. You know, so then they had a you know they had the little jazz band, and we 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 started playing some kind of kind of like Basie-esque, you know. Kansas City, kind of some real simple melodies, and just kind of keep the time going in that. And that's that's where the jazz bug kind of started, I think. My piano thing is definitely a mongrel education, you know. I just definitely picked it up, and then kind of tried to study it, you know, classically. Maybe by the time I got to college, because I was compelled to by the music school, <laughs> they wouldn't let me in the music department unless I was a classical piano major. They didn't have jazz departments really back then. And that was at the New England Conservatory? Well, no, that was at Long Beach State. Um, I studied, a, I, was, I went to school at Long Beach State for three years before I went to New England. And I had, that was where I met Jay uh, Anderson and a whole lot of other people, Chad Wackerman, John Patitucci. I'm, I'm spacing out, but there were, just, there were a lot of really good players around there at that point. I'm Dan Higgins, who's a great... Uh, studio musician, saxophone player, Jim Cox, a wonderful pianist and another studio guy. I think he's out on the road with Lyle Lovett right now, but just, there was a whole kind of a nexus right then and there, and by the time I was a junior in college, uh, they'd all kind of started venturing out into the world, you know, and doing gigs and getting gigs and going on the road and stuff, and I kind of found myself without my friends in school, so I, I dropped out to try to do the same thing, and one day at the dinner table, about six months later, my dad just exploded. He was just wasn't having that his son wasn't going to get a degree from college, you know. So at that point, I figured, well, let's go, you know, let's go someplace that sounds interesting. And I loved Jackie Byard, and I knew he was there. And so then the process began of trying to, you know, pull together the money with grants and scholarships and letters of recommendation and all that stuff to go to New England Conservatory, which I did for a year and then managed to graduate from there. And what was it like studying with Jackie? It was great. It was great. It was the experience of the hang, you know. He had some methods worked out. He had a lot of kind of devices that he had written down on paper, but the fun part was just to play duets with him and talk about playing with Mingus or, you know, that kind of stuff. That was really where it was at, you know, and he had the Apollo Stompers going, so you could go down and check out the big band, and and yeah, it was great. Man, there's some great musicians there, people that are very successful now, and that was a that was a wonderful year, I gotta say. And what kind of opened the door for you? I know you in the '80s, you spent a lot of time traveling with pop musicians, and in the late '80s, hooked up with George Benson. And was there a was there a moment for you that that changed things? A particular gig that you got, or a, a connection that you made? You know, it's for me. I don't. I didn't really ever get one of those. What do you call it? The lucky break gigs. It's, it was just like you know, kind of put your nose to the grindstone, network, make friends. I had come back from school, and my and my father was sick at that point. And it, I mean, if there was ever a time for me to have moved to New York, it would have been straight out of New England and just you know kind of go down the way. And the, the way things were with my father, I, I I needed to come home and take care of him. He didn't really want me hanging around. He was he was sick with cancer and and coming to terms with that on his own. And he was seeing that I was you know starting to kind of 
venture out into the world, and he didn't want to impede that. So that was kind of, it was a, t- it was a tough time, you know. But it was just a series of gigs. You know, you just meet people along the way. Hey, you want to try this? Hey, you want to do that? Um, I met Luis and Cross when I was with Paul Anka, of all people, you know, and, and ended up, you know, developing these wonderful musical relationships with them. And Luis and I made three records under his name, you know, as a result. And as a result of meeting the people on that record, I got the recommendation to play with George, you know. So it's just kind of a, it's just kind of a path, you know. There was, I've never been the most shameless self-promoter in the world, so I, I don't know if that works in my benefit or to my detriment, you know, sometimes. It's just kind of been a, a line, you know, a path, you know, with a little bit of meandering going on, of course. You know, it stops along the way, you know. talk about some of your experiences as musical director with George Benson? Well, what do you say about working with a legend, you know? I mean, this guy, this guy, he's had five different careers as a musician, you know, if you think about it. Working with him, I get a real dose of, of what I call like a champion's energy. He just, he's one of these guys who refuses to phone it in, you know, even if he's played this masquerade how many thousand times he still brings some kind of energy that feels like hey he's just kind of discovering something on this you know he's really getting into it you know i i just i really appreciate people that can rise above the repetition so to speak and and play with that spark of energy so that's that's been a great experience just being around that guy and we've played some really wonderful concerts met some people that sat in with us you know some of the great musicians of all time you just had a chance to tour with the Count Basie Orchestra one one year, and God, I can't, you know, it's just, how, how do you describe it? You know, it's, I met Miles Davis when I, when I worked with George. It's just, he's, he's just really something else. Uh, the whole album, I think, is fantastic, but a couple of the things that really jumped out at me were both uh, N.O. Rising and, and Afrobeat uh, mm-hmm. as just really fascinating tunes. Afrobeat in particular, which is uh, when, when you read the title on the back of the record, and then you turn on the turn on the record it sounds a lot different than what you expect but it over the course of the 12 minutes it evolves just amazingly i wonder if you could talk a little bit about what did that actually look like when you brought it into the studio how much of that is fleshed out and how much is the result of these guys well the the, certainly the beginning three minutes or so that that three improvisation was just like scott i just want you to play kalimba with some delay on it you know so we were kind of evoking something here and that was about all of the instruction i gave for that little section of the song Thank you. 
the various grooves was an idea I'd had laying around that I kind of originally thought would have more of a beat like the first song on the record does, kind of more of one of those drum and bass kind of things. But I could never really figure it out with that beat, you know? And then I had this idea to, I wanted to do those kind of Fela type rhythms on the song, you know? So I came up with a little bass line and realized that, hey, this this little cell of information in a couple of three different keys is a good way to kind of delineate some sections on this rather than have it just be this one long rhythmic thing all the way through. So that's kind of how that, that's how that one developed. John is a pretty impressive guy. I think the uh, you almost have to make the CD bigger to fit the instruments that he plays yeah. on the. On <laughs> well, the he back didn't play everything that he plays either. <laughs> <laughs> He's so funny. He'll show up. He'll show up with a car full of stuff just because you know, just in case. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what if we need this nose flute? I better have a, it. But that's a cool thing about playing with guys like that. It's like you've got an orchestra's worth of palette but it's only six guys at the most, you know, you've got, but you, you can make it sound like a lot more guys that way, you know, you've got people with those kind of skills. But he's, Cross is just amazing. He's just, he refuses to put anything in a bag. He's just all about pure music. He's just always been that way. He's a very level-headed guy, a very calm fellow. And you just put the, you just give him all these twists and turns, and he kind of skulls it out, and all of a sudden he's just playing beautifully, you know, just, just being John Cross. Just a master of, of, of melodicism, I think, and, and what a great sound, you know, on every, on every act. Well, it's a great record, Spinning the Circle. David Witham is the composer and uh, pianist, keyboardist, accordionist, and the band leader, and I really uh, thank you for taking the time to come on and talk about the album oh you're quite welcome Jason thanks so much for having me
That's David Witham from his new album, Spinning the Circle. You've been listening to The Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is available for free in iTunes. Please take a second and subscribe so you're always up to date. You can also listen at thejazzsession.com, which also features written interviews, live jazz news, and lots of jazz links. The site also features a link to the Jazz Session Cause of the Month. This month, it's the Music Maker Relief Foundation. Please click the link and give them some money. Thanks. For more interviews and reviews, you can visit allaboutjazz.com, the world's largest jazz website. You'll find my writing there, beside that of many other jazz experts and fans. You can contact me via email at jason at thejazzsession.com or call the show at 585-473-5304. The Jazz Session mailing list is available at thejazzsession.com. When you join, you'll get periodic updates about the guests who appear on this show, plus other news from the world of Jason Crane. The theme music for this show is by The Respect Sextet, online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Session logo. Thank you very much for listening. Remember to support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.